You're listening to Future Theater Radio with Bill and Nancy Burns right here on the Dark Matter Radio Network and PSN Radio. Hi, everybody. It is October 19th, 2015 the night before the Mickey Rooney book is officially published, and we are your co-hosts, Bill, that's me, and Nancy. Mickey Rooney, Mickey Rooney. Nancy Burns, and we are that's your me. co-hosts on Future Theater Live Broadcasting from the banks of Primrose Creek in beautiful downtown Solbury Village, Pennsylvania, on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN Radio with our wonderful producer, the legendary jackal, Angel Espino. Say hello, Angel. Only in my own mind. Only I know. And that, I, yeah, but so what? So what? Let but wait, but wait, but wait. Universe, Angel. What? No, I was said to, telling Angel, maybe it's only in your own mind, but let your mind expand to the universe. Well, that's what we're going to talk yes. about. But listen, can we all say hello to Keith? Because I feel we neglect Keith every week. Hi. And I know he's out there. Hi, Keith. Keith is our supervising producer, our senior producer, no, our executive he's... producer. He's the executive producer. and our Lord guests, Roland. But wait, but wait, but wait. I believe he's this—he's the actual president of the network, or the chairman of the network, or something. We should really say his real title. He's the executive producer, chairman of the Dark Matter Digital Network. Keith Rowland, thank you, Keith. (sighs) And guests tonight are Mufon's John Ventry who is one of the directors of MUFON. He was the head of Pennsylvania MUFON. He's one of the co-hosts of H2, History Channel 2's series, Hangar 1, and a, an, an aeronautical history scholar called uh, named Owen Eichler, who's written a very intriguing article, and we'll, this is the subject, a very intriguing article on the crash in Kecksburg that took place all the way back in... Um, 1965. 1965. 1965. Actually, a, a month after the Great Northeast Blackout. Really? Yes, one month after the Great Northeast Blackout. But wait, this but was the wait. Kecksburg crash. Did the blackout have anything to do with Brookhaven? No, because Brookhaven was all the way like decades later. But the weird thing about both the Kecksburg crash and the Northeast Power Blackout, and I remember this very, very well, uh, because I was downtown in Greenwich Village at my fraternity house at the time of the blackout, and and I I remember – well, it's true, because you couldn't get anywhere, because there was no – because you couldn't get home. So I I just remember on that night of the blackout – we would go – a group of us were going from place to place because the restaurants couldn't cook. All the food that was already made was going bad. People were kind of like roaming the streets like zombies in mm-hmm. uh, downtown New York, and we were just going from place to place eating. I mean, it So there weren't weird. that many generators in 1965? No, 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 no. And, and we basically – funny. Sounds horrible. Yeah. slept on the floor of the fraternity house and then got up at dawn. There were no – uh, nobody had any classes, and we basically found somebody with a car who 
basically wonderfully drove us all all home. Back Except, you know, you missed a golden opportunity. What about all the people who got laid that night and, and babies came nine months I later? I tried. I tried. Oh, good. Tried. I'm glad. There was one girl. but, but I, <laughs> I don't want to hear it. I couldn't isolate her from 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 her grimy friends, but um, ah. yeah, that, that was that night. One month later, was the crash in Kexer. But here's well, now, the, yeah, here's the weird thing: on both nights in 1965, President Lyndon B. Johnson literally disappeared. I'm telling you, this guy disappeared from mm. reality. He was huddled in on the night of the blackout. He thought at first that the Soviets were attacking. They'd knocked mm-hmm. out the power grid and they were going to attack. Right. But the same thing happened in Kecksburg. Even though nobody really knew that Kecksburg was taking place. Oh, well. well how, and how do you know this about Johnson? Oh, because when we did the Kecksburg story on UFO hunters, uh, all the way back in 2009, one of the stories was how how. Lyndon Johnson disappeared on the night of Kecksburg because we lined that up with March 17th, 1997, the night of the Phoenix Lights and the night of the comet when President Bill Clinton literally disappeared. He said he had hurt an ankle, sprained an ankle, but he didn't sprain any ankle. He disappeared. Right. And just saying that you got it on UFO Hunters doesn't still say where the information came from about Johnson. Oh, there's a great, and I don't have the article in front of me, but there was a great article that we used as, as part of uh, our research that I, because I, I had to write part of the dialogue for that show. Not the dialogue, but I had to outline what we were doing for that show, that particular episode. And part of that was um, the story of Lyndon Johnson disappearing on two occasions, the blackout and then Kecksburg. Wow, okay. So, so tonight's going to be amazing because both John uh, Ventry, our guest tonight, and Owen. So both John and Owen uh, together, I guess, wrote a paper, which uh, they sent to us. And they believe they've solved the mystery of what came down or what not just came down, what maneuvered down. But before we go there… Because that's going to be very lively, and we'll get right back to it, you know, um, in, in a bit. But well, they'll tell the story, yeah. Exactly. But before we go there. Lou says that that was an excellent article, by the way. It, oh, it he's is. got the article. Great. How did, okay, is the article available? Should I put it online? Do you guys yeah, know? Yeah, put it online. Yeah, put it online. John oh, perfect. John sent it around to everyone. So put oh, it online. good. I'll do that. Um, I'll try to do it during the show. I'll do it, do it okay. during the break. Uh, but, but the, um, the uh, fun thing here is that I wanted to talk about, before I go into my, I have a little presentation. It's a talk about uh, the uh, Art Bell show coming up. Uh, he's got David Jacobs on again, and I wanted to talk about that a little bit, and I wanted to talk about um, the something else. But first, but first, uh, we, and, and I bring this to Angel, we were in uh, Sirius Radio, the Sirius Radio building, um, on uh, Saturday, and I took some photos of Howard Stern's door yeah. and his wall where lots and lots of people have signed. And I was thinking I should really take careful photos because – and it's all behind glass now – that I didn't recognize a single signature. And you, Angel, probably would know every single see, one. See, <laughs> next time you guys go to like something cool like that to see Howard Stern, you got to tell me. I'll fly up there. 
Oh, really? Like, well, I'll go. But yeah, see, no, but, but it me? wasn't. Bill was not on the Howard Stern show. He was on another live uh, daily show, I guess. It was Her the Judith Regan show. Judith Regan, and it was so cool. This is what I wanted to tell you. They let um, Bill was in the interview. The uh, Rick was on the telephone, like tonight. You know, the second guest is or the guests are on the phone, and. The, his publicist, Bill's publicist for this book, and myself, we were allowed to be in the very room where they were talking. And here's the thing that blew my mind. You didn't have to be that quiet. Their microphones were so powerful. So they so pulled in the sound of the person talking, I guess, in front that the guys, there were guys in the room and they were typing and they were kind of quietly talking in the back. I was shocked. And Bill says, the headphones did not force you to have to hear an echo in order That's to That's it. The headphones were they were very thick, but you couldn't hear anything through the headphones um, that was coming outside the um, the feed. How All did you they heard do inside that? the headphones was the feed. And, yeah. and yeah, the wrap around before. the ears. Yeah, the the Beats by Dre did have the same effect, at least on yeah. Right. I mean, um, I was well. I was on the radio. I've been on the radio a lot. Um, obviously, in, in other professional venues. And so, when I was on with Dick Morris for the Doctor Feelgood book, same thing. Once those headphones are on, you are in a cone of silence, and all you hear is your own feed. You, you yeah. can't even hear yourself talking. All you hear is yourself talking on the right. radio. Right. Right. Yeah. So that would be quite pleasant and wonderful. And I thought that Judith Reagan conduct, it was so great to see a female in the booth, not in the booth, but in the chair, if you will. Uh, she was very well prepared. She, she is a book person. So she is a person of the book. Uh, she did read the book or look at it, you know, knows how to use it. Oh, she read that book. I mean, yeah. Judith Reagan knew that book cold. But I believe the interview was live. I don't believe it's on tape, but who knows? But that was that. But but for tonight's show, here's the here's the thing I wanted to say. Um, Art Bell introduced something last week that I think is kind of catching on in the media. When he introduced it, it's about the it's called it, it's uh, this dimming, this weird, strange dimming of a particular star far, far away. Do you know about this angel? Vaguely. Oh yeah, the uh, oh, yeah. Dyson's uh, sphere. Yes, yes, yes. That's yes. the one. Another story. Yep, yep. Yes. We actually, uh, we talked a little bit, a little bit about it on Skywatchers this past week. Cool. Um, and we'll continue. I'm not a. Well, time. But, but well, the thing about it is, um, I okay. We have a lady who's going to call in tonight. Um, I've I, I'm friends with her from you know social media, and she's going to call in tonight about the Kicksburg story. But she also wanted to suggest through the wormhole, and I don't know whether it ever got to Art, that perhaps the strange, and I'll take, she won't care if I say this, I'm sure, but that perhaps the strange dimming had to do with perhaps a brown star, a, a brown dwarf. And when she calls in, I guess maybe she can elaborate on that a little bit, but do, do you guys know what whether that would create, okay, you realize um, the dimming only happens several times over the past few years. It's right. not consistent or 
boop, 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 or anything like that. Well, so. Remember, when we're looking at these stars, we're looking at something that happened a while back. I mean, it's not like we're That's getting right. a... You're looking uh, you know, at something. Yeah, this is way. Yeah, it's not a current. Yeah, it's not a yeah. current thing. Yeah. So when we're looking at this, the way you have to decipher it is they're looking at it. Okay, this thing is not always keeping this shape. It's kind of dimming and then coming brighter and dimming. That's why it, to them it looks like something artificially built around the star. Right. Uh, or it could that be a doesn't very... wrap the, the, the or it could be a very large piece around there. Maybe not well, all the way around it. It could be a really oddly shaped rock that spins so that. It spins slowly so that a few years you see only a skinny side of the rock and then, then it flips. Well, it's not a rock. No, I mean, no it can't be a rock. rock. Okay, but, it but is, it, it, there's, it there's nuclear, no way it can be a rock. It is a nuclear fusion taking place. The thing is, what is around it right. that's causing it to dim? That well, is someone that is suggested in a scary kind of way. What if what you see is the fact that they're on their way to us and on a straight trajectory? And the dimming is sometimes when they cross, you know, like they're coming at us from, and there's no telling when they Maybe left. Maybe that's Nibiru. <laughs> nah. That's Nibiru, right. <laughs> well, anyway. Um, the, the is there a wing behind this sucker or is it just a, no. I don't know, a wing? No, that's just another Nibiru is the wing planet, remember? The wing planet? Yeah, exactly. No. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, that's what it is, the wing planet. Well, that's the whole point of Jacobs. That's where I was going with all this. After Wings. Art the suggested about the uh you know the dimming of KIC 8462852 that's the name of the thing the dimming uh, uh our competitor the other guy not that guy not the that other guy but the well, our competitor the other show the other other guy yeah well right. whoever but the who oh, no, are we talking about the uh the Sonorinator? Yes, 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 yes. Okay, 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 good. We don't right. like anymore. Well, let's well, not say that, but this is a story leader. Yeah. yeah well, supposedly he was very dismissive and said a talk show host suggested that it's aliens and it's been debunked, and this right, happened. Right, really, right. You know, and so it was a kind of a, a snide thing. And so I think Art would say um, that the people he puts on a show and the things he talks about are things that he puts before people. And asks them to make up their mind, as you have said many times. Right, I, you're right. going to put it out there and make up your mind. And I believe that our show last week, the Emma Woods Roundtable, is um, required listening. If you have any questions about Jacobs or wonder about hubrids and all that stuff, you might want to listen to the show from last week and make up your own mind. And I think we're on solid ground to say you can be the world's biggest fan of a radio show, but you're not going to like every guest, right? True. And sometimes if you have what you think is important background information, um, you're going to put it out there if you're caring at all about trying to get to the truth of alien life. That's what I think about that. So that that was my little preface about that. And then I have two absolutely fascinating tidbits, neither of which will take very long, um, and it may not be the whole 15 next minutes, but the two tidbits well, are very – Go ahead. Yeah. So you guys will pick it up if, if go this – Go ahead. Give us the okay. – the Knock yourself out, Nancy. Yeah, okay. The, the, the first one is um, about when you get to be blackout drunk. Have you ever – I hate to – I don't want to ask a personal question, but if you've ever – do you know what that means, blackout drunk? Oh, yeah. Been there four times. Yeah, Okay. I don't, I don't drink anymore because of the fourth time. I just, you know. Really? Well, see, now here's an interesting thing that I never knew about that, and it's really weird. Okay. And I love stories about the brain, and this is from uh, the wiki. 
And it says when you, when you black out from drinking, it's because of the effects the alcohol has on the hippocampus. And here's the weirdest part of all. Yeah, you don't, it definitely makes your hippo go campus, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. And here's what happens. You don't forget anything. Your brain doesn't record new memories. No, your no, brain no. is yeah. broken. And it's sort of like, you know, isn't that weird that, that you're there, but you're, you're not recording anything? It's such a zombie moment, you know. It's a great feeling, actually. But but don't you think also? Oh, it's not a great feeling. I mean, it, it's okay because you know what it leads to. More it leads to it, well, no, it leads to the syndrome that um, is called the Wernicke Korsakoff syndrome. Don't ask me why Korsakoff. Okay, uh, I won't ask. Or, or, or it's also called wet brain, and it's basically when you know you get permanent damage to the hippocampus. And that's why, you know, that, that's alcoholic right. dementia. You don't want that, see. Because you – can you imagine spending a life with no memories and, you know, you're not recording anything? Well, you know, at this point sometimes, Nancy, I wish I could live I know. life. I know. Some well, of the memories are kind of dark and, and bad. So, yeah, yeah. I, might, I might start drinking again, not after you read that. It's been oh, 11 years. No. Thanks, Nancy. Oh, no, no. Thank no, you, Nancy. Um, doesn't record any new memories. Nephew, nephew, uh, get me a beer. Come on, bring me a beer. <laughs> Well, this is a this is a it's good a whiskey. Back- you know, this is a good backup, by the way, for the Jacobs thing. And here's why: one of the things we talked about, and I wanted to give a shout out to one of the great tweeters. Uh, his name is Adam, and he was so angry, or she, uh, last week when we were doing the um, Jacobs stuff about hypnosis because he thought we were throwing every smack of hypnosis out, and no, we were not. We were throwing out Jacobs' method of hypnosis on the phone. Uh, and in private messages, it's crazy. Well, you, yeah, nobody in front of you. What if you start to go into a spasm or something? Anyway, um, the yeah. So uh, shout out, and I lost my train of thought. That's the bad thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was good. We were all going. So, it's nice. So what? So what was the second thing? Okay. See, see, that's the okay. No, see, that's the problem with me and regression for. Um, that's what I was going to say. Ale- for That's alien interaction. That's if aliens be. are so phenomenally successful at doing what they're doing, then don't you think, and this, this is really what I think, I, I really believe that normal hypnosis would not necessarily reveal memories that are blocked. Sodium pentothal, maybe, but if the brain is completely shut down, shut down to the point where it's not recording information, then no amount of recall, external recall, is going to trigger those memories. That's just, that's my right. problem. And, and, and what I was going level. to suggest to people is that if you wanted to test hypnosis, if somebody says, I can hypnotize you uh, through the blackout period, you know, um, there wouldn't be anything there, so that person could be considered a person planting memories, since supposedly you didn't, you know, your brain didn't put them in. That's where I was going. But you know how I lost my thought? And it's because of the next thing, the next tidbit. And the next tidbit is also a mind blower, and it's about the mind in the same way, okay? And I lost my thought because I went from, I went, I started glancing around the computer screens. I've got various windows open. I started, you know, looking at other things, and my eyeballs went, to another way. And, and here's the thing. There's this phenomenon called chronostasis, okay, which is so weird. It's, it's also called the stop clock illusion, okay? And what it, what it 
how it is in practical use is whenever you move your eyes quickly from one point to another point, there's a disconnect between your eyes and your brain so that your perception of time stretches backwards slightly. This is why when you first look at a clock, it appears to take longer than a second to move, you see. Okay, do you guys understand any of that? Yes, yes, yes. So, therefore... Well, for example, right. one person jokes, well, if I'd known that, I, when I was in detention, I would just have kept my eyes on the floor. In other words, every time you move your eyes around and, and switch your perspective, your brain, your brain is obviously stepping out of time. If when you go to look at the clock to your eyes, this is a, an analog clock with a moving minute hand, right? Right. Um, second hand. Second hand. Uh, minute hand, yeah. Okay. Or okay. the second hand. You're right. The yeah. little teeny the hand. hand. Yeah, that's that the hand yeah. that sweeps. For expensive one, yeah. clocks. Yeah. Only expensive clocks have that little third hand. The second moving thing. Right. Um, if you look away and look back, it takes a second for it to. In other words, you've just. Time hasn't stopped, right? But your perception of time has stopped. And I'm just wondering if this proves that there's a matrix that you you know the elaborate thing that you're doing with your looking is creating this um, whole reality. And maybe there's a way to slow down time. And maybe Kevin, who is blind, might actually have a comment on that. But anyway, so this is a, another Wikipedia thing, and there's a nice little illustration which I can put the link up of uh, this in action. Just believe well, it or not, somebody did a little... Um, well, little... the Matrix is real, Maybe. Burns. Maybe. There are, there are neurologists. There are neurologists. I'm sure Ben Carson is not one of them, but there are neurologists who will <laughs> say to you that the only basis for reality is the basis that we agree on what's reality, that there is no real... That reality itself is only an agreed-upon reality. That each of us sees reality differently from another person, even if the differences are only minute. But, but all we know about reality is what we can perceive through our five senses, and, and that is including touch, so that you, you will bump into a wall. You know, a wall is there. Yeah, but here's another bit of reality. When you go out and you, you open up your computer and you go out in the social media or you open up your phone or whatever, and you communicate with people through text – um, mostly through text. I'm not going to go into talking with people on the phone because this is a whole new thing, communicating only through text. I know a lot of people, uh, and I only know them through text. I really haven't even talked to them um, on the phone even. And you, I'm, I'm convinced whoa, that... Whoa, 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 that's just weird, don't you, Nancy? Uh, yes, it's really? always been that way because I've been on the Internet since it started, and there are people that you'll meet that you never, ever have any intention of talking to, but you're always kind of hanging around on a news thing or something. You know people through, just through the internet. I know a lot of people through Belgab, for example, and, you know, well, in the case of Belgab, they did call the various shows. They, they And tonight, um, our friend uh, is going to be calling in, and I, I'll see how she wants to be known before I say who she is. And... Um, uh, I only know. I only know. This will be the first time I've ever talked to her, so it is weird. But I also is think there a particular my, reason why she's hiding her identity? Probably, or probably, sh you know, like trying to have a shred of privacy still. That's 
Sure. Okay. Okay. If you have you ever gone on to a forum with a fake name and a, and a fake, you know, like not a fake name, but you know what I mean. You you, a sock, you make an avatar that and a funny sock name. Count, yeah. 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 Right. Do it all the time. Yeah. Well, do you actually do it where you really intend to hide who you are? Not really, because I usually post like my website links and stuff. Yeah. But I'm a whore for attention, so. Well, what about the people who are the opposite, who simply want to really stay hidden? Because let's say their their job would be in right ninety percent of the population, right? Ninety percent of the people out there, right? But there are people right. who do this because the, because it's a level of freedom. You can inhabit an alter ego. Exactly. If you've camouflaged your website, everything about you can inhabit an alter ego that allows you to say and do things that in some cases you would never say in public. Exactly. You would exactly. never say socially or that are so reprehensible so, you don't think they'll ever be tracked back so, to you. So here's the, here's, the, here's the observation. We're adding a whole new level to the matrix that we didn't have before. Every time there's a new technology, people fear stuff and they feared the telephone and now social media is adding a whole layer of friends who may not be real at the That's end right. of the day. That's whole exactly layer. right. Whole, and and <clears throat> um, I was uh, on the internet in uh, 99. I had a daily blog. It was, on every, it was up every single day. And that was during the era of people who were trying to get money, <clears throat> you know, like fake money out of people for pretend dying of cancer and stuff. And – it would just go through the whole blogosphere or the whole journal network. So and so is a big fake, you know, and and doesn't have cancer and just is scopping up the money. And that that was the first instance of let's just say not psychosis, but a crime done by an avatar to a community who were mourning the death and there was no death. Do you know about well, you know about the things, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was financial fraud. There was a whole bunch of financial fraud going on. Look, and, the and emotional the other fraud was- is what I'm talking about here. Right. There's emotional fraud, but also there's the emotional play, this thing of the Nigerian bank scam. Oh, that yeah. That was another one. That was another really big – actually, it became a meme. It, it still exists where you will get things that say um, from the Bank of Ghana, we suddenly discovered that you have inherited through a beneficiary – I don't know how the person knows you – $4.5 million dollars. But the problem is you must pick this money up in person to have it transferred into your account. So give us your bank account, your information for your bank account. And who would be so stupid to do that? Well, that's the funny part about it. So here we were doing this business. This is right around the year 2000 called iBachelor. And we're on the hunt for money. So we're talking to people like Mark Cuban, who later shows up on Shark Tank and a few other people. And we're basically out there, oh, invest in our new company. It's brand new. I still have that corporation, I think. I don't know. But anyway, and we're saying invest, invest, invest. So we get this letter. It is from this bank in Nigeria. We're willing to invest in your new company, blah, blah, blah. Oh, we're really excited. We've seen your website and we know you're looking for money. Here's the issue. If you show up in Nigeria and give us all your personal information, we will. We, you have to transfer the money yourself from our bank into your bank account. But please put on deposit, a good faith deposit, $10,000. And so the, these West Point graduates – or these are West Point graduates who did this business. They're saying, oh, I'll go. No, I'll go. No, I'll go. And finally, you, who's not a West Point graduate, who's not a guy, who's not, you know, 
I dress with, um, what's that, R.J. Cole, whatever that guy's name is, Kenneth Cole, you say, hey, wait a minute, everybody. I'm reading on the internet where it's a scam. Oh, no, it's not a scam. You've got to be wrong. And sure enough, it, it, was, it, was, it came to be known as the Nigerian bank scam. And nobody, not the National Security Council computer guy, not the West Point graduates, not the Army guys from Army Intelligence and Rangers School, none of them got it. You did. And boy, were they embarrassed. Well, um, you know, it's the same thing uh, with the NSA right now. How could a guy be pretending to be, a, um, you know, the Fox consult guy, the consultation guy? Right. He pretended to be, I think, a colonel or who knows what. For 27 years, he had him fooled. Right. He's never had, he never had the credentials. He said he did. And yet he's giving advice on Fox about you know, foreign policy and all this stuff. And <laughs> nobody but, – but, but I thought the NSA knew everything about everybody. I don't, I don't understand why he didn't get vetted by somebody. Um, well, if the, if the NSA knows everything about everybody – as well as the CIA, how come neither the NSA nor the CIA knew, or if they knew, why did we endure this, the, the attack on 9-11? I mean, I, I, I'm well, not going to go that's into a very big story. But no, I'm sorry. The thing for me is when you look at all the warnings we received from the Israelis, from the Germans, from the Spaniards, from the Taliban itself warned us. We had gotten uh, Ramzi Yusuf's computer. The World Trade Center had already been attacked. Chris Carter had already had the attack on the Lone Gunman series. Remember that? They already had the attack. It's like everybody knew that at some point, maybe not that day, that attack was coming. The FBI already knew. And I have this... I, I should tell Donald Trump this. Maybe I will. Every day, uh, uh, the FBI already knew six months before the attack, this would have been in uh, late spring, early summer 2001, that there were people in the country, they were in here uh, with false, with um, a false identification papers, they were trying to raise money from the Small Business Association for a crop dusting business, and they were in possession of at least one full suitcase of weaponized anthrax. Right, and that's another attack. Six months before 9-11. That's another attack under Bush's watch as he kept us safe. The anthrax thing is just under the rug, gone, ever. Exactly, and the FBI agents. The doctor at the emergency room who treated one of the Flight 93 hijackers back in June was screaming at the FBI, there's weaponized anthrax in this country, and these guys are coming around. This was all the way down in Hollywood, Florida, Angel. Uh, that's where this took place. And so it always, end, it always ends up in Florida somehow. It always ends up – yeah, this was, this, was, this was in the Saudi community in Hollywood, Florida, and these guys were – schlepping around a suitcase full of anthrax. I mean, can you imagine what would have happened in the summer of 2001 had they gotten their small business loan? These guys had been to flight school. They supposedly knew how to fly small planes like little Pipers and Cessnas. They knew how to fly them. Can you imagine them dumping weaponized anthrax over South Florida and Miami 
in the summer of 2001 and then going to Boston to, to um, hijack the planes on 9-11. A double whammy. Wow. But the problem is the FBI knew about it because agents were informed that I know one of the agents. She was on the Ted Bundy task force all the way back in the 70s. She knew about it. What, where did that information go and why years later did the FBI pin it on this guy, Bruce, the scientist Bruce Ivins, who then, commit suicide, who then committed suicide, not at all for the anthrax, but because he had a sexual abuse problem and he was um, a sexual offender and was humiliated and commit suicide. But that story has never been told, but it's actually, if you want the story, it's in the book Suicidal Mass Murderers mm. about Cho Sung Hui. But anyway, that's that story. So when everybody screams about 9-11, I keep thinking everybody told the administration Condoleezza Rice admitted on television that we had that advanced information, but that our intelligence services didn't know what to do with it. Please. Well, Don't stretch my imagination well, too. Well, there's a. I mean, it's a rabbit hole that once you start to slip down it, um, you know, it, it's going to end at Judy Woods for me. I until somebody really disputes what she says, I'm kind of, I'm kind of tending toward her her um, very elaborate um, uh, dissertation on everything that happened right. that day. You know, just from the evidence and the movies. Did you watch any of the movie? Like, she's given great lectures, and you kind of have to see one of her lectures to know what I'm talking about. And um, I'd love to have her on the show, but I'm a little, I'm a little fearful of going down that rabbit hole. To be honest, I think it's a place that's still radioactive, and it's you can get hurt as a journalist if you go there. One of the things people say is that that taking down of those buildings, which were built with. Um, Let's just say organized crime family steel, a Genovese steel, uh, the, uh, the Genovese family steel. They were below code. Those buildings had to come down. That the land underneath the buildings was worth more than the buildings. But well, the before buildings, we go there, uh, we do have to take a break. We have um, to take breaks. Yeah, so, so you might as well do wind it up and make the break. I'll wind it up. So uh, for those who had invested in the buildings, this was a boon when those buildings came down. So we are Bill and Nancy Burns on Future Theater Live on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN Radio. We'll be back with our guests, John Ventry and Owen Eichler. After these messages, stay with us for a rousing discussion of the Kecksburg crash in December 1965 back with our guests on the other side. Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Hello, my name is Howard Hughes, and I'm in London, and I've been proud to bear this name all my life. Over here in the UK, I'm known as a broadcast journalist. I've been involved in some of the big stories of our time. The fall of the Berlin Wall. The death of Princess Diana. I told London about that. 
And on the first and second anniversaries of 9-11, I was there at Ground Zero, speaking to the people who were directly involved and those experiences I will never forget. So news is my thing. But my great love is my show, the one that I produce, The Unexplained. Over the years on this show, I've spoken to people like the late Al Bielik from the Philadelphia Experiment, Edgar Mitchell, the amazing Apollo astronaut, Dr. Stephen Greer, David Icke, and Uri Geller. People like Richard C. Hoagland have become personal friends over the years. I met him in London. So you can see that these sort of topics are what I like to discuss. Please join me on my show from London, The Unexplained, Monday nights on the Dark Matter Network. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com Put a team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions. Providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology. Preventative maintenance and networking support. Hardware and custom built computers. Let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly, or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call key information solutions now. 954 That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. Hello, my name is Howard Hughes, and I'm in London, and I've been proud to bear this name all my life. Over here in the UK, I'm known as a broadcast journalist. I've been involved in some of the big stories of our time, the fall of the Berlin Wall, The death of Princess Diana, I told London about that. And on the first and second anniversaries of 9-11, I was there at Ground Zero, speaking to the people who were directly involved and those experiences I will never forget. So news is my thing. But my great love is my show, the one that I produce, The Unexplained. Over the years on this show, I've spoken to people like the late Al Bielik from the Philadelphia Experiment, Edgar Mitchell, the amazing Apollo astronaut, Dr. Stephen Greer, David Icke, and Uri Geller. People like Richard C. Hoagland have become personal friends over the years. I met him in London. So you can see that these sort of topics are what I like to discuss. Please join me on my show from London, The Unexplained, Monday nights on the Dark Matter Network. Here's a riddle for you. What do the California gold rush of the 1850s, secret societies, coded messages, mysterious 19th century flying machines, and an early 20th century outside artist named Charles A. A. Delshaw all have in common? The Secrets of Delshaw by Dennis Crenshaw and Pete Navarro. Go to www.secretsofdelshaw.com to learn more. This is James Swagger, host of Capricorn Radio. I'm also an author, engineer, and researcher. Capricorn Radio covers alternative history, alternative science, philosophy, and truth-orientated discussions. 
We are proud to be on the Dark Matter Radio Network live at 8 p.m. Saturdays, Eastern Standard Time. You can catch extra info on darkmatterradio.net, jameswagger.com for yours truly, and capricornmembers.com for the archives. Don't forget, truth is not democratic, truth is truth. trying to reach John Ventry and Owen is having some sound problems at his end but Amy is here Amy um thank you for joining us we are really excited um thank you so say hello to everybody hey, hello everybody out there and there you go. thank you Bill and Nancy for having me on oh we're so excited uh I'm excited to hear um part of what you're going to explain well I'm excited well, to wait, hear what you're what, going to talk about what why don't we let Bill uh, kind of outline, or Amy can help because I think you've well, read well, that's the paper what I, oh, oh, as here, well. Here's what yeah. I was going to do. I'm going to kind of set up Kecksburg uh, from from my perspective as I know it. Then I will be the devil's advocate, inhabiting the the spirit of Owen Eichler, and uh, kind of just very briefly presenting Owen's perspective that what really crashed was a Mark II reentry vehicle. Then we'll turn it over to Amy, and we'll let Amy. Come uh, uh, just describe what uh, just talk about what she thinks, why it was or wasn't in her opinion. But I also wanted to get Amy's opinion on this strange star, on this uh, winking black, a uh, back and forth that everybody's been talking about. So let's just start with Kecksburg. So it is December 1965, and folks, and th- I'm th- I'm going to do this in a real capsule format. But but let me also add that we are still trying to get Owen on, and as soon as we do get him on, we'll pick up from where we are. Good. Yeah, Owen had an echo. That was the problem, and um, our exec producer and chairman really has issues, with, and he's right, has yes, issues yes, yes. when the sound isn't exactly perfect because we are a professional radio network, so you want the sound to work. Yes, so indeed. therefore yes, – yes. Therefore, um, it just gets very disturbing if the sound is off. So that's why we're trying to work with Owen on getting his sound. I don't know where John Ventry is. Uh, I've beeped him, but he's not here. So uh, here's the deal. 
It is December. It is 1965. And folks all the way from the Great Lakes across the state of Michigan, places in Ohio, and finally in rural Pennsylvania in the suburbs, in the rural suburbs outside of Pittsburgh, see an object, a glowing object. It is glowing green and orange and purple. It is glowing. It is an artillery-shaped or an acorn-shaped object, and it is making S-curves over the Great Lakes, over three states, and finally, people in the area around Kecksburg, Greenburg, uh, rural Pittsburgh, see this object. It looks like it is coming in for a controlled landing, and in fact, it does in a ditch. In, outside of Kecksburg, Pennsylvania, it lands in a ditch. The people who've seen this thing fall go running out to the ditch. They, they, they want to see what it is. Uh, I have spoken to, this is in, also in my book as well, in UFO Hunter's book too. Uh, they go running out. They see this glowing purple object, almost like um, glowing different colors in this ditch to this day, or at least as early, uh, as recently as 2009, at least one of the, um, at least one of the truck drivers said that he has been plagued with radiation sickness ever since standing next to that object on that day. Uh, another person, uh, his first name is Billy, I don't remember his last name, Buellbush, Billy Buellbush, also said that he's, that he's had physical problems. He was there. The reason I remember Billy Buellbush so well is he actually was driving a 1962 Corvair. So that was one of my favorite cars. Anyway, so that was – so he's there. A lot of people are there, and what they see are um, paramount. Well, Owen, Owen was there also. Owen was there too. He was a teenager. Uh, playing Stan in a Gordon. baseball game. Yeah, playing in a baseball game. Stan Gordon, who was a teenager, who's become one of the great Kecksburg scholars, he saw this as well. And in fact, this influenced so greatly uh, Owen Eichler's childhood, his teenagehood, that for the past 50 years, this is the 50th anniversary coming up this December, for the past 50 years, he's been researching what might have happened at Kecksburg, what that object was. So that's Owen's story. And people notice that uh, troops, military troops, in trucks, in a deuce and a half, in flatbed, in vehicles, show up. They're armed. They're wearing black. They keep everybody away. The state troopers, Pennsylvania state troopers, keep people back. They're pushing them away. Uh, they retrieve the object, and they flatbed the object out towards Ohio. So think Wright Field, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. People who follow up on the story, there was one, and I forget his name, uh, um, there was one radio um, investigator, one radio talk show host out in Kecksburg at the local station who starts interviewing witnesses. This person um, gets, the term is braced. He's like confronted by, I'll say men in black, but they weren't really wearing men in black. They were, uh, they were guys in suits confronted by them in the radio booth. Were they black suits? They were dark suits. His producer, through the glass, sees this guy cowering before these men towering over him. He gets back on the air. He says, oh, this was all a big mistake. He was all wrong. Nothing really happened. 
He doesn't know why he was doing it. People didn't know what they were seeing. And then a couple of weeks later, this guy died in a car crash. Hmm. So that is the nuts and bolts, real quick story of Texas. After after all this happened, after all this happened, um, years later, Leslie Kane uh, um, came forward and she filed along with John Podesta. And here's where the conspiracy stuff gets fascinating because John Podesta worked for President Bill Clinton. And he was on the he was on Bill Clinton's staff. John Podesta and Leslie Kane together file a lawsuit against NASA oh. to disclose the information about what happened at Kecksburg. I remember and, that now. Yeah. Yes, and now John Podesta is Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman. So folks are really excited about the possibility that you now have in the uh, who may be in the White House. Somebody who certainly has the ability to disclose the truth. The other part of the story is this. In the Uh-oh. last part... Somebody's getting a call. Yeah, that would be Bill. So, hang, so, so let me ask... Let, so go ahead. I'll wait, take this call. Yeah, let go me ahead. ask Amy. Amy, uh, based on what you heard so far, and of course you've read the paper, how accurate is this tale up till now? Well, the tale itself sounds just fine. Um, my contention, and it's not really a contention exactly as to what it was. It could have been a Mark II device. But the main thing that I'm considering here is where it was launched from and what exactly it was, of course. But right. um, when we talk about the Mark II, and we're talking you know, December 1965 for the incident, the Mark II was actually obsolete by 1965. Yeah, that's what you said. And the heat sink on it, it, see, there's different ways that they dissipate heat for um, a reentry vehicle. One of them is with a heat sink, and that was the first method they had tried with the Mark. Oh, no. Oh, no. We're okay. I think her, uh, her camera, I think, is killing it. Okay, so, yeah, maybe we'll reconnect with Amy and do it with no camera. Um, yeah, hopefully. Yeah, this is a great night for, for sound. For sound. Oh, yeah. Uh, and Bill is back, I think. I believe. I can see him. Nope. nope. Yeah, well. No, no Bill. Yeah, he's, ta- no, he's talking to somebody animatedly on the phone. We'll, we'll pull this together. Amy, are you there? Yes, yeah. I am here. I'm back. All okay, right, there good. you go. Lost. Without the camera, good, good. Yeah, I think it was pulling too much power, and we're giving it all she's got. So the obsolete part is what caught my eye today when we were chatting, um, because we were talking about the story, and you said, yeah, but accept that. that. And so how – we need Owen or John, and we'll we'll figure out, but based on the, um, the, the piece that you read, the article, gee, that's a bad thing. Um, and another main – issue or contention here was um, the fact that from Johnston Island, you know, where this supposedly launched from, the uh, Thor DSV-2M launch vehicle is actually a suborbital vehicle. It is not a orbital launch vehicle. And so if it was launched on the 7th, it has to go into orbit and stay orbiting, going around, you know, 30-some times over that time period. And 
what we're looking at is is a suborbital vehicle in the Thor DSV two M. Well, are these um, are these these are not spaceships? These are rockets meant to obliterate cities and things. Okay, time out. I I just sent you, Nancy, and you, Angel. John Ventry's landline. So why don't you try to call him, uh, Angel, and bring him on? Okay. All righty. Well, we could try to do that. But um, first, uh, let's let Lou join the call. Hey, Lou, welcome ah. to uh, the show. What's up, Lou? I have to call back in. Well, I have to call well, back first in. of all, what's going? On? What's up with your audio, bro? All right. Yeah. Okay, Angel. Okay. Okay, now Bill's sounding really bad. Guys, so let's Angel, do this. Let's go on a let's go on a quick break because everybody's having bad audio. Uh, let's play some music here. This is a little Mac Maloney. Mm. Bear with us, everybody. Wow. Light years from home, all on my own, they say. Separated by fools who don't know what love is, yeah. Pick you up, I'll take you into the night and show you a love like you'd never seen, ever seen. It's like having a dream where nobody has a heart. It's like having it all and watching it fall apart I will wait to the end of time for you
Okay, so if the overlords of Skype, if the overlords of Skype are our friends, uh, we are all back with our guests now, John Ventry. Amy is here, Angel's here, Nancy's here, I'm here, I think Owen is here. Let's just see. So uh, let's rewind the clock and let's let John tell us, the, introduce oh, us. Bill, to before, before you go there, hold on, Bill, do you hear, do you hear any echoing? No. I, don't hear, I don't hear any echoing. Because Owen is not on with us. So exactly. So you want to call. You want to try the cell. But but how about this? Amy said at the break, right before the break, and this is for John, um, that that particular reentry item was obsolete. Well, let's in start. 65. Well, let's start with John setting up the story of Kexburg. Well, here, then, I, I think Owen might be calling in, so let's do that first. We're live on the air. Might as well. This yeah, has we're been live. A hell of a Hi, show, everybody. everybody. This is this is. Hey, this hey, is, Owen. Hello. Hi, Owen. Is that Owen? Okay, so here's what no, do. No, oh, this is not Owen. Hold on, hold on. Is yeah. not Owen? No. No, I was calling in with a question. Sorry, guys. Okay. Oh, the, the wonder you sounded so good. It's not Owen. Go ahead. Ask, okay, ask that's, a question. Okay, Lou, wait. Theater. Go ahead. Okay, everybody wait. Here's what we're going to do. John's going to set us up with what really happened at Kecksburg and why John is involved and why John's been researching this for so long. Then John can characterize what Owen said if Owen is not here. Lou can ask his question. Lou, hang on the line, and then Amy will give the response. So there's another caller. On a, there's another caller on the line now, Bill. Though, so you have another. Person that wasn't me, there. Bill. That was someone else. Okay. Well, let's all wait. John set up Kexburg for everybody. Set it up, John. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. Well, the you know the no original Kexburg story on uh, December ninth, nineteen sixty five, at four forty seven p.m. Something came through the sky. It was it was on fire. It was glowing green, and it, uh, it, we know from Cana- really from Canadian radar that it made a turn at Cleveland, a left turn, and then it made a right turn when it passed Pittsburgh over by the Kecksburg area, almost as if to avoid the population areas. And, you know, for me, in my mind, it was always, you know, it can't be a meteor, obviously, because it can't make these two turns, and then it was kind of like slowing down and having a minimal type of crash landing. So, I mean, that was the, the story. So what happened was, back in February, Owen contacted MUFON headquarters that he believed that he had explained and figured out what this was in Kecksburg. So MUFON headquarters put him in touch with me because I'm the Pennsylvania State Director, and I got involved with Owen. And I told Owen right off from the beginning, look, you're going to have to convince me because this has been out there for a long time. And, you know, I've got questions with with the green glowing, the turns, how did it slow down, you know, more so than any other legend part of, you know, seeing uh, the bell at Wright-Patterson and a creature on a gurney with a hand sticking out. I don't know if that part's true, but we know what the what came in on the sky and what it looked like and the numerous witnesses that something landed, and, and, and that part I, is totally verifiable. So he went through his explanation, and, and i got to tell you, I'm 90 to 95% convinced that what Owen has researched and found out, and I actually helped him, uh, he, what happened was he sent me all of his research, and I went through it, and I actually found one on December 7th that had no, uh, there was no outcome listed. And I said, whoa, wait a second. They lost one on the 7th and have no outcome. So you know, then the questions became, how long do they take to come down? 
And it and turns what, out, and that's yeah. what Amy's going to talk about. But also, um, the folks in Kecksburg, in 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 the rural areas around Pittsburgh, saw this thing coming down. People uh, tried to; they thought it was a plane at first. They tried to go to the crash site, but it was a controlled crash. Mm-hmm. They tried to go to the crash site. We interviewed specifically, remember George, who was the truck driver, who was standing right over it in the ditch. He's had radiation poisoning for, for ever since then. There mm-hmm. was Billy Buellbush, who basically yeah. was standing over it as well. So we interviewed people who were there. But, John, did you know the person or have you heard of the person who was the radio commentator who was interviewing witnesses like uh, some of the moms who saw Murphy? that that night? Yes, Murphy. That's the guy, Murphy, who was cornered in his radio booth by two guys. His producer saw this thing. The, the station receptionist saw this thing through the glass. He's cornered by two guys. He goes back on the air. And he says, oh, the whole thing was a mistake. Correct me if I'm wrong. The whole thing was a mistake. And he winds up dead about a week later from a quote-unquote a car crash. Yeah, I, I don't remember the exact time frame when he got hit by that car in California, if it was a week or a month or whenever it was. But his wife always felt that it had some connection to this Kecksburg as far as uh, the way he uh, had passed away getting hit by a car. Well, Similar to John Mack, you know. I know. It seems a lot of times when ufologists get close to something, they 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 pass away premature. Um, but you know, here's the bottom line with this whole thing: is that what we've discovered is that this particular GE Mark II reentry vehicle was a spy satellite. Basically, they were launching two, three, four of them a week out of uh, Johnson Island, Vandenberg, and they were spying on Russia and China. Now, the important thing is that we can prove why it glowed green, why it looked like a four-pointed star, how it maneuvered, uh, because it was capable of doing all of that. And um, one of the very important parts of this is that it had one of the early atomic or nuclear generators in it. They started using these in 1961 and this is 1965 so it had that i think it's called an rtg in it and and no one can tell you all the specifics of what they were using we believe when think about this bill the americans said they never tracked this on radar only canada tracked it yet they were there in 30 to 40 minutes with two dozen army soldiers three Air Force and four NASA people. Blue Book lied, saying there was only three Air Force people there. But how could they get there that quickly? So we know. Ah, and here's something were, else. The yeah. very same thing happened, or just the outlines of the case happened in Needles, California, in 2008. An object came down along the banks of the Colorado River. This person, Riverboat Bob, saw it. Suddenly, he said, a sky crane helicopter showed up. And according to George Knapp, who's the weekend host of Coast to Coast, a really good friend of ours, George Knapp um, told the story of how, again, armed men wearing dark camis, um, camouflage jumpsuits they show up in town they're questioning all the residents they're intimidating the residents they confront Knapp they say what are you doing here Knapp says me I'm a radio host What? I'm a news reporter what are you doing here he mm-hmm. finds out they're from the, uh, uh, the National Testing Service in other words they're from 
the the service that retrieves nuclear devices that was in needles in 2008 and so in the in that episode of ufo hunters we compared the two incidents cuz they were so similar but the but it always struck me and i'm going to turn this over to amy it always struck me why nasa because the problem was one of the explanations in your article john your article with owen which mm. Uh, you know, I you know part of me subscribes to is that this object was shaped a lot like Die Glocke, the Nazi bell, and the chairman and one of the directors of NASA in 1965 was a former SS colonel, Kurt Davis. Kurt Davis was the project manager of the Nazi bell in the Owl Mountains in Poland in 1945 that disappeared as the Soviet forces closed in. So there you go. Amy, tell us your position on whether this was a Mark II reentry vehicle. Well, you see, one of the problems here is, is that no orbital vehicle that I know of, whether it be a reentry vehicle or a spy satellite or anything, has ever been launched from uh, Johnston Island. Those were all suborbital or, you know, ASATs or anti-satellite. Uh, Thor rockets that were launched. You know, some of them had cameras, some had actual nukes, and they and they had the Starfish Prime experiment. They had all bunch of things out there, but they never had an orbital launch. And so, if if you want to continue on the route being it of it possibly being a Mark II, I would look towards Vandenberg Air Force Base when they were actual launching actually launching Thor Agena rockets, which are orbital rockets. And you had a bunch of spy satellites, just like the ones you mentioned, you know, the, the KH-3, KH-4 Discoverer, and Corona, and Argon, and all these other names, of which there were many dozens, and they could have easily, you know, diddled with the, the launch record somehow and put something else in on one of those flights that actually could have been the Mark II that you're looking for. And so that's that's my main contention, is that it wasn't from Johnson, and it wasn't any of the Thor vehicles from there. And, and, my, and, 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 and my main contention is that the, the thrusters on the Mark II were meant to navigate in suborbital or orbital space. They were right. never meant to break. They were never meant to do a soft landing or even a crash landing. So what I don't understand, I didn't understand from um, Owen's research, how those thrusters could have given a controlled descent in Earth's atmosphere to land it at that spot. That was my problem with Owen's research. Yeah, yeah, those, those four jets that were on it were meant for outer space where you needed as minimal force as possible to turn it and couldn't really do much, you know, coming down into Earth's atmosphere. The reason we mention it is the first witness, Francis Kalp, who called it into the radio station where John Murphy was, said it looked like a four-pointed star. So our contention is, since we know it had those four jets on it, they were on. They were probably not doing more than 1% of slowing it down, but they were definitely on doing everything possible that uh, that uh, could be done 
to uh, slow it down. But the way this thing slowed down, and we got to get Owen on the line to uh, to to respond to uh, you know which which type of of launch this was. But the way it, the way it's it uh, slowed down was that uh, it had like this weight and balance system on it, where it was it was the you know the 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 the, the big flat end first, so you're kind of like uh, surfing, you know, and it's coming down through the sky, and once it hits the heavier air, it's able to almost like glide on it, and it absolutely said in our notes, and I know Owen has the general's name, uh, and I can read you the quote uh, from my notes here that uh, these were U.S. Air Force missions that evaluated reusable, maneuverable reentry vehicle designs that might be able to fly to a precise landing point on Earth. So we know that these things were maneuverable. They had a copper... Um, that's Owen trying to call me right now because he's trying to get on the show. Um, they had And Lou a- is actually calling me right now. So, guys, here's what you do. Uh, there's a call-in number, okay, that you should call. Angel will pick up, right, if you have a headphone on. And Lou is going to call back. So Angel will, get, will give us the number because I don't know it. Well, let's get Owen on first. Okay, the call-in number. Ah. Yeah, why don't you tell me what it is and I'll, I'll, I'll text Yeah, let me Owen find it. it. Well, actually, it's on the front page of Future Theater. Just, uh, just read the number. Anybody see Future Theater? See, and Lou, is calling, Lou keeps calling me, not understanding the way this works. Okay, futuretheater.com. The big number is right there. The number is 786-245-8127. Call that number and magic happens during okay. a live show. So that's okay. maybe Owen could call that from his cell phone. I just texted him. Yeah, I just yes. texted him. Okay, the good. There. We'll figure this so, out. We'll all- I'll be on the lookout. You see that? So, uh, so John, so for that to be that maneuverable, that Mark II, and, and Amy, weigh in if you think this works, for that Mark II to be that maneuverable, what you're saying is that as early as the middle 1960s, we had the ability to do controlled robot landings with a vehicle that didn't need parachutes for recovery. That's what this general says, a- absolutely. And we know, hey, think about a, somebody that jumps off a mountain with those uh, squirrel suits on. All they do is put their arms and their feet out, and it ca- creates those little bit of wings. And you can float down. I mean, human beings do this. They jump off mountains, uh, and they glide down using the heavier air, and you can shift your weight and turn. That's exactly what these were made to do. And, and, and Bill, the cool thing with this, too, is do you remember back in the late 50s, there was the, uh, the, the green meteors in New Mexico that Dr. La Paz worked on? Right, right, right. Another UFO. This, yes. it, it was another UFO mystery that they didn't know what these green meteors were. That was the testing of this technology with a, a copper heat shield. These absolutely had copper heat shields on it that glowed green when they came down through the atmosphere. So we not only explained Kicksburg, we explained that mystery of Dr. La Paz in New Mexico in the late 50s. It was this. And it's 100% that this had a copper heat shield and it would have glowed green. It had the four jets that were on and not doing much, you know, it would have been on. That's what Francis Kalb saw. It had the ability to shift its weight, 
coast along the air, and, and make a semi-controlled type landing. We can prove that 100%. And I really need uh, Owen on to respond to the other. We okay. know that there were four from Johnson Island launched in December. And our example is on December 9th, Vandenberg launches one, an exact same one, has the same erratic, uh, they call it attitude, not altitude, attitude, and it took two days to come down. They launched it on the 9th. It came down on the 11th. That's why I'm saying... And this is from Vandenberg, right? Vandenberg, yeah. And that's why I'm saying the one launched from Johnson Island on the 7th could have come down 39 hours later in Kecksburg because we know the Vandenberg one came down you know, 48 hours later. And he, we even found ones that took two years to come down. And they were, numer- they were launching three of these a week between the various well, locations. Why, but why after all these years? So now we get to the point about the Leslie Kane-John Podesta lawsuit. Why after all these years is this still so secret that NASA says it has no knowledge of this, can't find the file, will not disclose anything, and why would John Murphy really be intimidated by these individuals, by these um, dark-suited individuals in his radio booth, if all this was, was a surveillance system? Well, it was more than that, and that's what's really interesting with this. They made this available. It was secret until 1991, and that's when this information started to come out on these spy satellites. And by then, everybody knew. The Russians by then knew that we were spying on them. Everybody knew. It's no big secret. But it's not like they put a press release out and said, hey, guys, you know, this is what we're doing. Nobody has found this. Owen found this in manuals and textbooks. That's where he found this information. It was released, but it's not a public announcement. So unless you're going through all these different, you know, various documents that we have referenced there, he found it. And the problem, I think Leslie was going through NASA. This was an Air Force project. It was not a NASA project. But here's the cool thing. But NASA was there. I mean, NASA was there at the recovery. We now know. Because they track, yeah, they they track everything that's coming down. They track what goes up and they track what comes down. So do the Russians. And that's why it was not Cosmos 96. But let me let me stay away from Cosmos 96. I can explain that later. Here's the big thing. There were two reasons why Murphy was visited. One, at the time, this was a spy program over Russia and China. So we couldn't let them know at that time that we were spying. But the more important thing, I believe, is that this had a radioactive power source on it. And when that thing, that's why they steered it away from Cleveland and they steered it away from Pittsburgh, almost like Flight 93, for the people who believe it was shot down. Once it passed over my house here in Greensburg, you know, just east of Pittsburgh, that thing went down in, in a wooded area, just right. the same way Kecksburg went down in a wooded area, this, this UFO, in a wooded area when it avoided the, the uh, population centers, but it had a radioactive power source. And I believe the four guys in NASA radiation suits that were there, that the witnesses saw, carrying a 4 by 4 box into the woods, were carrying a lead box 
to either cut that power source out or remove it because they could not have a radiation leak. They couldn't put that on that flatbed and drive it down Route 31 to the Turnpike through Kecksburg and Greensburg and, and have radiation leaking all over the place. That was just as important to secure it. That's why they were there within 40 minutes. That's why they were in radiation suits with a lead box. I mean, it makes perfect sense, Bill. That was just as important to contain. Just think of, think, think of the one in 1980, uh, what was it, the Cash Landrum. They, tore, they had to replace the blacktop because of the radiation. So that's they couldn't right. do yeah, that's I mean, right. that's what they would have had it done along a, who knows, a 100-mile route. <laughs> it was just as important to secure the reactor as it was to keep it secret. So both of those reasons is why they went to Murphy and said, you're going to report this as a meteor. Right, and the problem that I – well, um, without disputing um, Owen's theory, and I, and I would leave it up to Amy – but the uh, uh, my problem is why after all these years, why after Cash Landrum, why after Kecksburg, why after Needles? Needles is almost what is it now? Eight years ago. Um, yeah. Why is the government still not talking about these things? Because because uh, uh, the premise would be these are not UFOs, these are not flying saucers, these are basically atomic reactors that. <clears throat> In the case of Cash Landrum, overheated. Now we know that. Now we know that it was. Uh, uh, we know that it was the. Um, we uh, we contacted JSOC. We know that this was the a uh, Project One Hundred and Sixty, the Black Hawk helicopters um, that owned the night. They were the ones taking this burning reactor out to sea to dump it in the Gulf. We know that now. <clears throat> uh, the National Guard has come forward and said that really resolved Cash Landrum for us. Although the Army still doesn't um, admit responsibility, hence Colby Landrum still has to walk around wondering. Uh, we know that the people in Needles, according to George Knapp, were from the National Testing Service. These were the um, uh, nuclear retrieval guys who are very deadly guys. They went to Needles in 2008 to retrieve that object from um, and suppress witnesses along the Colorado River. So why isn't the government talking about this and right. saying, look, right. everybody calm down. Nothing to see here. This is what happened. Yeah. I have an answer for that. Go ahead. Think about this. Leslie Keen and Sci-Fi Channel boxed them in. When they filed the lawsuit, NASA responded that everything that they had was turned over. They would search mm. for the rest of it because the federal court mm -hmm. ordered them to turn it over, and they lost the box. So mm -hmm. now, Remember. eight years later, uh, I don't think it was settled maybe seven, eight years ago that they, they said this. How can they come out now? And I don't even know if they read Owen's theory. They can't say for or against at this point that, yeah, that's what it really was. Or no, it wasn't because they were ordered by a federal court to turn over everything. And well, they Amy, said they did, and they lost the rest of it. So how can they yeah. respond now? Uh, guys, I think Owen is on. And Amy, I, I wanted your opinion on this whole we lost the box thing. The whole th You're a scholar in this field. I think Owen might be here. We'll s yes. see. No, this, oh, I, I called in earlier with a question. I'm the same guy. Hello? Yeah, look for 814. 814 is Owen. So that's the number you got to look for. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And Lou is here, too. Well, 814 is there, but 814, are you uh, available to speak to us? Yes. Ah. Go oh. ahead. Is that, you? is that you, Owen? Yes. Go well, ahead. Look at that. I nailed it. All right. Go ahead, Owen. All right. 
Well, I finally High made it. I, I finally five. made it. I was sitting here wanting to know what to do, and I figured I'll call the uh, number on the internet site. And by God, I got you. I was well, the keep, one. keep that keep that thought. Six one four. Since you called back in, uh, you want to get a question off, and uh, then we'll get everybody uh, going here. Yeah, Mine real self. quick. Um, yeah, this is James from London, Ohio. I live about thirty five minutes from Mike Pat. Uh, anyways, that's where that the Kecksburg Bell ended up going. I know that because when I was growing up, I there was a guy who drove trucks with a bunch of tiles there for it. Um, I agree with Bill that it was probably the Glocka, you know, or a variant thereof, because Daybus and and the whole team came over here for right. the Bell. Right, that's and what bothers so, me. Why was Davis and there? So, yeah, well, yeah, but here's my thing. Uh, a large contingent of them settled in Cleveland and other places around, around Ohio area, and we're talking Kentucky and all that, right? Right. So... The, we know they kept those those experiments up, and the thing about I understand mess teams because I was a federal. Uh, well, anyways, I I used to work for the government. Okay. And uh, a, a nuclear emergency team uh, were not even formed back in that era. You have broken ah. arrows and bent spears. Okay. Ah. So that okay, uh, this whole stuff about taking the radioactivity out in a four by four box. That that whole the first a four by four lead box. If you knew how heavy that was, four men couldn't carry that. If it was actually shielding. Secondly, um, they did bring it out. They took it the right path, and it's all time, distance, and shielding. This is kind of my bailiwick. Okay. And uh, the amount of time, and the amount of distance that you have from it, and then the shielding that you have in it. In a truck, it would be negligible moving at any speed that you're not going to be destroying a bunch of, uh, somebody had mentioned, the ta- uh, the road asphalt. Right. That's not going to happen if you're moving the, the thing. And so my question is, I guess it's not so much a question as, as so much as, please explain to me how we the retro rockets on it could not steer it, and, and we know that the Deglaca emitted a greenish-blue when it was fully charged. So how can you say that they moved it away from Cleveland? It, it, it doesn't make sense because it didn't, didn't even pop radar till Cleveland. And, okay, so, uh, it, okay yeah, so here's the thing with the Glocka. So, okay, great. So I'm going to let Owen answer that. But before that, the one aspect of the Glocka was that years le- uh, just a few years ago, um, Nick Ryder who was uh, one of the scientists at BLT Laboratories, um, mm-hmm. tried to do an experiment with counter-rotate. The way DeGlocka worked, supposedly, was this. It's all tied up in, like, um, lore from um, the Vedic texts. But it's basically two counter-rotating um, um, containers, cylinders, of right. red mercury, very heavy red mercury, if you counter-rotate them, they spin out a radioactive field. Well, Nick Ryder at BLT tried that on a very, very small level, getting very heavy metal, liquid, very heavy liquid metal, in two rota- uh, counter-rotating cylinders, and he set that up in a containment uh, vessel. And sure enough, 
that that generated um, a radioactive field. Now, Ryder yep. wisely shut the experiment down, saying, "I don't know where this is going to go, but I don't want to be there if it goes bad." So we shut it down. But but that actually worked. So the question was, at least as far as we tried to analyze it, and one of the German scientists, Axel Stoll, who worked for uh, the Stasi, said to us yeah. in Berlin. That in fact this was uh, um, that nobody knew this was a time machine. It was it was the wonder weapon. It was going to explode at a certain point and at a certain place in the future, and that's why Kurt Davis was in charge of the Kex, of retrieving the object from Kexburg. I'm going to turn this over to Owen. So you've heard all the opinions. Owen, then Amy, go ahead, Owen. Well, I'm catching up on the tail end of this. Uh, Dr. Okay. Burns, I haven't had the opportunity to hear most of the conversation before this because I've been off the phone. Okay. So, so where so should me, I me, where should I me, start? <laughs> let me comment. Let me comment first, and then we'll turn it over to Owen. Owen, they're ahead, asking John. about they're asking about the Bell Project, but uh, a couple of things to answer uh, the caller is uh, first of all, this thing weighed. With a nuclear weapon in it, it weighed 3,500 pounds. Without the weapon in it, it weighed 1,500 pounds. I don't know how much the camera system weighed that was in it. So we're talking about something that weighs maybe 2,000 to 2,500 pounds max. So to take that generator out, yeah, I think four guys can carry a box that weighs 300 pounds if that's what the generator weighed. I can't imagine it weighing more than that. Four guys can carry that out. Um, I never heard anything about that Glock glowing green. I've, everything I've read said it glowed, it defied gravity by 89%, it emitted radiation, and it lifted off the table on, on experiments. I never heard anything uh, about it uh, grow, glowing green. Um, and plus, there's real, no real evidence that the Glock was ever in use, but I do concede, look, we got the notes on it in 45, this is 65, it's 20 years later, we could have certainly been experimenting. And I don't uh, discount the Glock, I think it's a possible, if there's, if there's two things that this is, it's either this GE Mark II or the Glock, it is not Cosmos 96 or Oh, right, we know that Meteor. it's not no, because we know that where Cosmos 96 came down. I mean, that's been right. tried. You know, that's accounted for. We know it's not a meteor because meteors don't do a controlled landing. So, yeah. Owen, the, uh, uh, the issue is um, Amy is saying that, um, that the um, vehicles that were launched from um, Johnson Island were suborbital. It was only the ones from Vandenberg that were orbital, uh, that were um, – uh, that reached orbit, and uh, we and our caller is saying that he has experience with nuclear retrieval procedures, and that this particular procedure in Kecksburg doesn't fit into that matrix, and that the nuclear retrieval team uh, from the NTS service that wasn't that wasn't up in operation in December 1965. So let's start with the premise of your paper, Owen, and take us forward. Um, let's, let's try to get this caller's uh, uh, question answered. Go ahead. Uh, let's, let's talk about the bells. There were several bells. Mm -hmm. we, we obviously know that. There was a bell called the De Glocka, mm -hmm. which in my readings and research have shown that it was operating so that it could uh, put together a critical mass. It was, a nuclear re it was a nuclear reactor. 
Yes. It well, was, yes, you, you could call that. It's so, it would be somewhere between a centrifuge and a reactor, but the point was they were trying to put together a critical mass. Right. And you would be familiar with that, correct, Dr. Burns? Correct. Okay. And in other cases, we've heard of a bell and did some research and study that uh, sort of indicates that they did have what would be a, what, a common centrifuge. And that would be to try to uh, make the nuclear fuel more concentrated. For example, they could use it uh, in a bomb or they could use it in a reactor. Their intent in the, the early German days was to put something on a rocket that they could shoot to the enemy and explode it. In other words, the first atomic bomb. And then we have what's called the Kecksburg Bell which we believe, for all intents and purposes, was a uh, satellite. And in my experience in interviewing the people in Kecksburg, where I worked for uh, several years as a service manager for Laurel Vending, and I became very well acquainted with firemen and with witnesses and people out there, many people there said, sort of under their breath, it was a satellite, which kind of indicates to me that they never really ever believed it was alien in nature. Now, that explains, to me, that explains uh, the caller's question about the, the Glocka, the, the different bells that there were. Now, I wanted to go now to the next question where he talked about the uh, lead box, where John mm -hmm. and the caller was talking about the lead box. In my experience, and I worked in the nuclear field for many, many years, learning how to handle nuclear material, knowing uh, doses, rates, uh, distance, as the caller mentioned. The uh, thing that I can recall uh, working even on the top of nuclear reactors, commercial nuclear reactors, is we had to uh, wear lead aprons that covered us from our neck all the way down to our knees, pr pr protecting the body's vitals. And they were right. no more than a quarter. They were no more than a quarter inch thick, and somewhere on the order of maybe five to six square feet. So we could wear them. They weren't that heavy. No, oh, they were. Excuse me? Oh, yeah, I've worn those, too, and they are heavy. You know that. Yes, it's, like wearing, you... it's like wearing a threat level four bullet-resistant vest for rifle rounds. So yes, you're looking it... at about 40 pounds. Yes, and That's it does get... That. It does get quite heavy when you're trying to work with one on. However, what I'm saying is if they lined a box with that, it wouldn't be that bad if one man could wear something that weighed that much. But here's even more to the point. The, radio, the radioisotope thermal generator used in those days had its own shielding to begin with. It was in a canister that uh, had a uh, reflective surface inside to keep the neutrons and uh, other radiate, radiation away from the outside environment. So it had in its own way an initial protection from... Uh, right, but during the crash, it didn't, it didn't crack. I mean, that's a, a, you know about a, if you worked in the nuclear industry, you know about a broken arrow and a bent spear, the difference between the two. Oh, yeah. Usually you will have a, a, you have a breach in containment. Yes, and that's something that I wanted to talk to Dr. Burns about. And while you're online, I can ask Dr. Burns about that. Sure. Uh, the crash, uh, we were talking here about the uh, 
rupture, possible rupture in that crash. You you were at the crash scene, were you not? Yes, sir, I was. Okay, and am I right in thinking that I had seen uh, on the show that you were on that you guys took Geiger counters there? That's correct. That's That's what I thought. And then I wanted to ask you, did you know or did you take any background radiation readings when you were there? Yes, Ted Ackworth was in charge of taking background radiation readings because we had somebody from the state geology uh, group there, and we had somebody there with ground-penetrating radar as well looking for any kind of formations underground in that ditch that would have revealed something strange about the area. And we ran it over with magnetometers as well. And we didn't find any anomalies in the ground. Okay, I, I do recall that from the show. Now, for the caller's knowledge and the audience knowledge, those radioactive thermal generators used uh, various fuels at the time. A popular one was cesium. Right, and cesium. If, yes, and if you know what the half-life of cesium is, it's 30 years? Correct. Oh, easily. Yes, 30 years, and it is quite coincidental now after 30 years that uh, they're talking about it. It still would be present if, if uh, it had been dispersed on the ground or had been dispersed in the air, but 30 years is, is quite a long time. However, it is enough time now for it not to be picked up, or at least not picked up very strong. Background radiation in Pennsylvania from radon and other uh, uh, radioactive elements just that, that occur naturally is around 15 uh, millirem or 15 millisieverts uh, or 0.15 millisieverts. And that's why I asked Dr. Burns if he, had, if he could recall what the background radiation was in the area. No, all I can recall is that um, when Ted brought the results from the Geiger counter readings to the geologist, he said that was consistent with normal background radiation, and you're right, Pennsylvania sits over these various prongs. There's the Redding prong, there's another prong, all of which emit radon. And so he said that was consistent with the radon admissions, uh, emissions for that area. Well, then okay. that makes sense to me that there was no breach. So, but right. still, but, though, but I think, it, I think it, it absolutely explains that they didn't know that until they got there, and that's why they got there so quickly with the radiation suits on carrying that box, because they didn't know yes. what they were going to find. And, and, and no, and didn't one of the elements have a seven-year half-life? Uh, that I know of, uh, no. The, the, the only other element that comes out of... Uh, uh, radioactive fallout, we'll say, for example, is iodine, and that's only got an eight-day half-life. And oh, they, wouldn't have, they wouldn't have used iodine anyway. It's, it's more likely they would have used uh, a, a cesium, and probably not so likely they would have used plutonium, because if they would have used plutonium, we would have found traces of that. That sticks around for 4,000 years or more. Yeah. And these were early generators that were used just to create heat. I mean, we're not talking about today's nuclear reactors. Oh, no, uh, no, no, reactors. no. But, I mean, according to Phil Corso, we had um, small uh, nuclear power plants all the way back in the late 1950s. Mm. And, in fact, according to friends of mine from various three-letter agencies who shall not be identified, these were some of the power plants that um, Chinese spies – 
posing as students in the United States yeah. were able to pilfer. And that's why the Chinese have um, advanced nuclear weapons now that they didn't have in the middle 1950s. Yeah. I want to turn it over to Amy and see what Amy's reaction is to all of it. Okay, well, I was listening to everything you've been saying here, and I do agree, yes, it could have been something that had special nuclear materials on it or an RTG. That's a good clue. Um, on the reentry vehicle, back to that, I if if it's really confirmed that it banked or changed radically changed direction in the last several miles of lower atmosphere, I don't know of anything um, coming back from space that can that can do that. I mean, that does not unless it's possibly it's a black project. I mean, I would suggest that. Um. Well, to your point, if it were a black project, Amy, indeed, that would be why attempts over the past 50 years to recover information about this from government sources. Owen did this on his own research, stuff that was on file. Um, The government has just not been forthcoming about this at all. Yeah, I Owen can explain the maneuverability. Why don't we have him do that for Amy? And then just let me say one thing before you do that. When that caller called and talked about protocols, nuclear protocols that weren't in place, Project Moondust protocols were in place, and this absolutely matched what Project Moondust would do to recover something from space. But I think I Owen agree. To, absolutely. Yeah. This would have been a Moondust project. But, um, but, uh, but go ahead, Owen. Can you explain for Amy? Because this is part of the contention. Amy earlier said that there was nothing the, um, that could come down from orbit. This is before the space shuttle. That was, that was so maneuverable that you could actually guide it to a controlled landing, albeit a crash landing. My argument was that basically capsules coming down from space generally that we wanted to recover came down on parachutes. So, Owen, why don't you explain the uh, maneuverability aspect? I'd be happy to. It is rather technical if you people can follow me on it. We'll follow you hard. Well, except for me, but, but they'll explain later. We'll we'll try to go through this so that it's presented clearly. If you can imagine what this looked like, and I assumed all of you have looked at the pictures. Yes. Okay. The base of the the MK2 is essentially a large, circular, uh, thick piece of copper, and it's forward-weighted, which means that they... The large base goes forward. It's called blunt body. And the back of the uh, satellite, if we want to call it that, is a funnel shape with the smaller end of the funnel going towards the the back end. So what you have is what would people have described as an acorn with the blunt end of it flying forward. Mm-hmm. Now, in, inside of it, if you can picture a center of axes, that runs uh, all the way from front to back, the center of axes, you have to have a way to control roll, yaw, and pitch so that you can, uh, first off, stabilize the satellite while it's in orbit and during reentry. You have to have a way to turn it, and you have to have a way to tilt it. So the center of axes, if you, would, if you were to find out where the center of gravity was 
on the whole vehicle, it makes sense that the center of gravity is going to be more forward towards the blunt end because that's the heavier end. And so if you wanted to tilt that, all you would have to do is slide a weight on the center of the axis, either to the front of the vehicle or the back of the vehicle. And that's going to give you your, uh, your pitch or your tilt so right. that you can move up and right. down. Right. And keep in mind that the front end, the blunt uh, uh, object, the front end of the blunt object, actually functioned as an aerodynamic wing. It was a smoothly polished concave surface, and it was made in conjunction with the tail end, the funnel end, so that the vehicle going forward could never roll, or not, it could never tumble. And what you would have, the situation you set up for it to go fly horizontally is with the, just the right amount of tilt or pitch as you would use a counterweight to slide forward or backwards and that aerodynamic surface with the air flowing over top of it on, on the, the top side of it a whole lot faster uh, due to the Coriolis effect compared to the air underneath both are going the same speed, except that the air on top is moving faster, and it creates a low pressure. Right, that, so that's lift. That's the Kawanda effect, and that's lift. So that's actually breaking the fall of the object because the air – it's, it's also the Bernoulli principle, right? It's the air on the bottom is providing lift to the object, slowing its descent. Correct, and as long as you have enough forward momentum and speed, you can keep uh, a level flight. But the question has always come in is, how did it turn? Right, that's that's my question. (laughs) Okay. Now, that is another system of weights, which this is clearly visible if any of you have seen the the, uh, picture we have in the paper. There's a weight in there. Again, it works off the center axis, the axis going through the very center of the cone to the front end. If you if you have uh, that counterweight on that center of axis, and you turn that counterweight either clockwise or counterclockwise, you'll have the reverse effect. In other words, if you turn it to the right, the air the uh, the blunt body object will tilt to the right. If you turn it to the right, it turns to the left. Excuse oh, me. Oh, so you're saying this is like a gyroscope on a string. So if you move the string around, the gyroscope goes back and forth along the string, and that's what's happening internal to the object. Correct. It's like a bubble in a submarine that controls the angle of an ascent or descent. It's if you move the air bubble um, forward or aft, that controls the angle of the sub. That's a fairly good analogy, Dr. Burns. Okay, go ahead. Keep going. Well, that is essentially how it works. So that as long as you have forward momentum and you control the, the pitch or tilt, we're calling it, and you're able to turn or, or yeah, using the gyroscopic effect of weights and the, the craft itself, and you're able to tilt it either to the, uh, not tilt it, but turn it to the left or right, it will follow uh, the course that you set for it. And once you've made your turn, you can return your uh, your counterweights back to where they were originally. And that was demonstrated as it came down and made two turns from Canada to Kecksburg. But this would have to be 
were they actively programming these gyroscopes inside the object, or were these pre-programmed? That, that is something we may never know until we have our hands on it. But I can tell you this much, Dr. Burns. I did research, and I have a paper in my files here that talks about the uh, types of technology that were available that the Germans brought us over from the V2. In other words, the gyroscopes they had, the control devices they had. I have a, a very long career in electrical engineering, and I could recognize the age of these uh, controls they were using then. Uh, back in the 1970s, I worked for the nuclear navy, and you could tell just by looking at them, the wiring harnesses, the types of connections they had, and even in some cases, uh, you could see uh, brand names. Of course, they were German. So they already had uh, technology from the, uh, the V2 that they had in place, and they most likely would pre-program these uh, gyroscopes to keep uh, the craft going in the direction they want unless they sent a signal to you know, override the pre-program. Well, we knew from the V1, we knew from the V1 that the Nazis had the ability to send low-flying cruise-type missiles, air breathers, but low-type cruise missiles um, into London, and these were pre-programmed courses because when the Spitfires would intercept these things and the British could shoot them down, uh, these things could not avoid uh, the, uh, the um, anti-aircraft defenses. And they would be... They they could be tipped over too with a wing from a fighter plane. Mm -hmm. Once once they got tipped and their gyroscopes couldn't handle the uh, the change the course change they were done they just tip over. Right, so they we were a very know, ineffective weapon. Right, so we do know the technology question. existed, and I I'm, I would like to add I'm not sure how where I come in on the conversation, but I did personally witness this in flight for a period of five to six miles. You and were was, there. You were there. Yes. The I was yes. absolutely astounded that it did not fall. I could not believe something that was that big and obvious, fully burning, not tumbling, but full, fully burning with a, a bright green flame. Behind it was uh, an orangish-yellow flame and a purple, wispy-type flame behind it. And I just watched it go straight, level, and flight. Christ, the, all the way from, uh, well, you wouldn't know the area I lived in, but it was over a, a five-mile period. And when we went in the house and we found out that it went all the way to Kecksburg, I said, no way, there's no way something could have went that far. Why wasn't this destroyed on impact? We uh, we believe that such a, a, a large body that, like John had mentioned, could go anywhere from 2,500 to 3,500 pounds would essentially, if it was in level flight, would essentially act like a cannonball, Dr. Burns. When it comes down, it's going to make a thud. Mm -hmm. And that's something I wanted to ask you, if you don't mind. When sure. you were at the, When you were at the site, <clears throat> did you happen to see... Uh, a pathway cleared where it essentially dug something out for yes, so many feet. That was, yeah, we stood there and we saw there was a trench that literally was tre inside the ditch. It had trenched along the bottom of the ditch. And even after, what, 45 years, uh, that trench was still there. 
Is there any way to discern whether the vehicle did that or whether a bulldozer did that? No, we could not discern that. Okay, but I'm of the feeling and intention that that trench was uh, dug by the vehicle when it came in. And, Dr. Burns, I believe it would have just acted like, uh, a say, a log truck going down the highway and going off the road. It's not going to particularly care what it hits. It's just going to keep going through things until it eventually comes to a halt. Well, that's what Stan Gordon said. That's what Stan Gordon told us. I mean, he was there and he said, yeah, this is exactly what happened. What you described just now is what he said exactly happened. This thing came in level. It didn't come like bottom down. It came in level and basically dug out just like a plane making a crash landing. It, It dug a trench for itself. I agree. I agree 100%. So getting back to your question, I don't believe you'd have seen any debris because, as you can see from the pictures, it had no appendages to it. And when I saw it, it wasn't tumbling through the air. It was in a, it would appear to be a controlled flight. So what we're thinking is it just came in and just scooted right up into this hillside and buried it. It flipped and buried itself, cone in, in the hillside. Well, uh, let me, as we are coming, uh, we're actually minutes away from the end of the show. Um, So, Owen, are you going to be at, uh, John, are you going to be with John at the the Pittsburgh MUFON um, later on this month or next month? Well, uh, no, I'm going to let Stan present his Kecksburg stuff. We're still putting this out on radio shows, and we're hoping actually the local media picks up on this. And we believe the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette We'll, uh, we'll air it this week. If questions come up at the conference with me or after Stan's presentation, I will definitely tell them about this. But one other very important point, Bill, is the only drawing we have from that time period, the only notarized drawing was from Jerry Betters, where he drew the Army truck and the object. That object yep, in the yep. drawing is a 100% match to this GERV. Okay, let me give Amy a shot here. Amy, what do you think about all this? Well, like I said, it almost is like a black project, and we haven't heard of this counterweight technology before, and I think this is very, very fascinating. Mm. Um, I'm wondering why we haven't used it on any of our manned capsules or Soyuz or or any other vehicle, and I, and I couldn't figure that out, how without you know conventional flight controls and purely thrusters just how this vehicle could be controlled and so well maybe that's a that's a good explanation and i would emphasize this explanation in any of your future endeavors because i think this is uh, could be part of the key of, of explaining this well where owen is is correct um is that the Germans did use this. This was part of their technology, but what's so fascinating is this has been superseded over the years by, by obviously, computer technology and computer maneuvering, and, and, and we've seen that. But just to uh, I'll leave you with a, a scary thing, it's that in 1944, by 1944, the Germans had the ability to mount V-1s, launch pads, on the four decks of their U-boats. Uh, 
And all the way back in 1944, Admiral Dönitz, who had effectively taken over leadership of the Nazi high command. Uh, Hitler was so high on methamphetamines, he was simply babbling in his bunker. Admiral Dönitz had taken over leadership of the Nazi high command. He had sent a small flotilla of U-boats with V-1s on their foredecks. Now, we know from what we know after the war, when uh, we were interviewing the various German scientists, Werner Heisenberg among them, that the Germans never developed the capability to um, set off a critical mass by um, conventional explosions. It's not that easy to do. And they... They knew the formula, but Heisenberg wouldn't give it to the German. He he wouldn't give it to the generals because he knew what would happen if, if if Hitler had the atomic bomb. So the Germans never had it, but they did have the ability, we think, to launch V one rockets at the United States, especially at New York. To this very day, lying on its side in the bottom of Long Island Sound off Port Jefferson is a U-boat with a ladder launching ramp on its foredeck. And um, so we know that. If you go back to the New York Times in November 1944, you will read an article in which Mayor Fiero LaGuardia is screaming that the Navy is doing nothing to protect the east coast of the United States from German weapons. But this technology that Owen described was in fact what the Germans were using for their own suborbital vehicles, which they had by the end of the war. They were very advanced at the end of the war. Um, so it is, we have like four minutes left. So here's what I'd like to do. Yep. John, could you set us up for what you're doing at the Pittsburgh MUFON conference and invite people to go and tell them where they can get the information? Yeah, uh, we're having our uh, Pittsburgh conference. We just had Philly uh, last weekend. It was great. You go to uh, www.mufonpa.com to register. And this conference, we're actually mixing it up a little bit. We got uh, Phyllis Galdi from Faith Magazine talking about uh, ghosts. Phyllis, and, Phyllis, yeah, yes, yeah. Phyllis. And, and we got Lauren Coleman talking about creatures and Bigfoot. And then Ouch. we've got uh, you know, four other speakers on UFOs. So it's going to be a combination of spirits, uh, Bigfoot, and, and UFOs appropriately at, right after Halloween. But MUFONPA.com is where you would go. And if you like Bigfoot, you should go to the Allegheny Mountains because I have heard from various conferences that we've done in, in, in Bucks County that indeed there is a family, a big, a Sasquatch family living somewhere in, in the Allegheny Mountains. Thanks, John. And you can all catch John on Hangar One. At some point, John, you and I can talk about the big UFO flap over Lee Heighton in, um, north of Allentown near Jim okay. Thorpe, Pennsylvania. Okay. Yeah, I think so, you have to kind of close it up. Yeah. I'm going to close it up. So, um, well, a bit early. I mean, it's, you know, you got like, no, okay, minutes. good. I'm sorry. I'm looking Two. at the wrong. Go ahead. Clock. Nancy, go ahead. You take you it. A couple no, minutes, I'm, actually, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, okay, so, yeah, that was just, but it does give me sometimes time. Sometimes I got to say, rush you. Sometimes you're like, uh, you rush me. And well, I was taking the time as everything was going over my head. I mean, does anybody this else want to plug anything? Well, no, I want to say this. Um, I'll make sure that I link up the entire paper on futuretheater.com. It's and, a great paper, Owen. And then, uh, John, if you need me to put the conference stuff up, let me know. I'd be happy to put that up on there, too. Future okay, Theater. yeah, I'll send you it. Okay, cool. And then, um, and next week we have our own Chris Brown, and he's bringing and and some other little surprises. 
Um, if we can get Amy to come back again, I would be a happy camper because Amy and I are friends on, as they say, social media. And is also a bell gabber. Don't you want to say who you are or do you not? Oh, I'm actually uh, Dinah X on Bell yeah. Gab. Actually, Dinah is the name of my cat. I'm hiding yeah. behind my cat. <laughs> well, here's the thing, Dinah X. I, I don't know whether you were on the music thread recently, but they gave you a huge shout-out, and I wanted to step in and say, guess what? She's going to be on the show tonight. So can I now go back into Bell Gab and say, guess what? She was on the show tonight? Certainly. Ah, yay! Because name away okay, so I, I am now gonna, mm. I am now gonna take us out. So that's true. Um, the you know last, yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead, Bill. The, uh, but I also want to thank Angel. Wait <laughs> one second, because Angel <laughs> did a Angel. magnificent job getting all the sounds together yes. tonight. It was crazy. Abs, abs. Angel, you Skype are the champion. You are thank the you, wizard. Sir. Thank you, man. You have Thank you. You have stood up against the lords of Skype. Uh, last plug for everybody. Okay, so stay tuned for Art Bell on Midnight. He's going to have uh, uh, David Jacobs on. Um, and last plug weird. is The Life and Times of Mickey Rooney yeah. publishes tomorrow. So yeah. everybody, if you like us, go to Amazon. Buy the book in hardcover. Buy the book in Kindle. It's a wonderful book. Got a great review in Publishers Weekly. And um, Stay Thirsty Magazine loved us. And uh, so buy the book. Thank you very much. We are your co-hosts, Bill. That's me and Nancy. Yep, I'm here. Good night. On Future Theater Live on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN Radio saying thank you to our guests, Amy. Owen Eichler, John Ventry from Pennsylvania MUFON. We will see, I won't see you, but Nancy will see you next week on Future Theater Live. Stay tuned for our bell. Everybody, what, 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 what? Right. Oh, I think I know. It's a secret. It's a good thing. Right. That's right. Okay, so, uh, right. We will all see you uh, next week. Good night, everybody. <laughs>